Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we're continuing our series, Living the Truth. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 13 to 16, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Keep the Commandment. know if you're a part of a church that practices a form of worship in which, in the end of the service, the pastor speaks a doxology. If you don't know what that is, let me explain. A doxology is a blessing. As people leave a worship service, the last thing they hear is a blessing which the pastor speaks on behalf of God. See, there are a number of places in the Bible which contain what we now use as doxologies. You know, for instance, one of them is the Aaronic blessing. Moses commanded Aaron as high priest to bless the people of Israel, and it's recorded in Numbers 6, 23 to 27. There God tells Moses, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. And that's what happens in a lot of church circles. Now, there are other doxologies found in the New Testament. As we come to the end of 1 Timothy, Paul gives a doxology or a blessing, but in this case, he doesn't actually bless Timothy. He blesses God. That is, he makes a declaration of the greatness of God. And the reason he does it is, well, because God's worthy of it, but also that Timothy should remember that when he performs his duty as a minister of the gospel, that Timothy is ministering before God. The hymn of praise that Paul offers to God is for Timothy's sake. Listen, says Paul, to who God is, so that should you ever feel the temptation to shun your duty or to become slack in your work or to take the easy road of appeasement rather than the hard road of obedience, listen to the declaration that I now give you of the great God that you serve. Now, as we're about to read this passage, let's remember that. If you who listen to me today are not a pastor, this passage should still be studied with a great deal of diligence. For no matter what work you do, you have a holy calling. It may be an engineer or a teacher or a truck driver. Do it to the glory of God. It's God that you serve in your work. And should you think the God you serve is anything less than altogether glorious, well, listen up. So I'm reading our text. It's 1 Timothy 6, 13 to 16. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He was the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Our passage begins with very important words. I charge you, or I command you, or I'm giving you orders as a superior officer, orders that I forbid you from ignoring. Now think of it this way. When Paul begins his second letter to Timothy, he starts with the words, to Timothy, my beloved child. And we've got to imagine that Paul thought of Timothy much like his own son. It was a relationship of love. But even while that was so, there were times when Paul had to put his fatherly affection aside and then speak to Timothy as a superior officer. Timothy, although you're precious to me, 
And although we spend so much time together, please don't think that you have the option to treat the word I speak lightly. And so we have to imagine Timothy is reading these words, and as he does, his eyebrows raise. What Paul's about to say is a divine command, and Timothy knows he has no freedom whatsoever to ignore what comes next. It's very much like a commander on the battlefield receiving orders from the general. He has no freedom to say no. Now Paul adds to the seriousness of the charge. The charge is not made just between Timothy and Paul. The command is made in the presence of God the Father and of the Son. Let's talk about the Father. Paul calls God the one who gives life to all things. That's a very basic Bible doctrine. The very first line in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. All the cosmos, all that exists, both visible and invisible, they come from God. But why is that so important here in 1 Timothy? See, I think Paul adds this so that Timothy will not fear for his life or his reputation or anything else. The one who gives life is also the one who preserves life. Timothy must not fail to keep the commands because there is something that he might fear. It's been said that no one is so courageous as the man or woman who only fears God. But no one is so cowardly as the man or woman who does not fear God. For if we don't acknowledge the one who gives life, we'll surely fear everything else. Jesus puts it this way, Matthew 10, 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That is, you need to get perspective. So where's the threat? I mean, really, I think it's a word for all of us who fear to be obedient because we fear the reactions of people. We need perspective. And so what Paul gives Timothy is a divine command. Paul wants Timothy to understand the command is given to him in the presence of the God who gives life to all things. And second, the command is given in the presence of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. Now, when Jesus made his good confession, we have to remember that Pilate was an enemy of truth. Do you remember when Jesus stood before Pilate? Conversation went like this, John 18, 37 to 38. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Jesus, when he stood before Pilate, was testifying to a man whom modern-day people would recognize. You know, we're sometimes told we live in a post-truth world. We've often heard it said now, people talk about my truth. And when they say that, they're really saying what Pilate said. There is no truth. See, what they mean is my perspective. They mean to say there's no objective truth. There are only things that are true for me. But in using the word truth in just that way, they state like Pilate, they don't believe in truth. And so we have to imagine Jesus before Pilate speaking the truth to a man who's the enemy of the very idea of truth. And that, notwithstanding, didn't prevent Jesus from bearing witness to the truth. That is to say, the example of Jesus teaches us that bearing witness to the truth doesn't depend on how a person might respond to that witness. See, in Pilate's case, he would have let Jesus go free, but instead he crucified him. See, he knew that Jesus was innocent of the charges that were brought against him, but he also knew that he didn't want to offend the Jewish religious establishment. And so he condemned an innocent man. I mean, after all, what is truth? 
And Jesus, knowing that this was the way Pilate thought, still continued to bear witness to the truth. He bore witness not because he thought he would convince Pilate, but because it was God's will that he bear witness to the truth. See, Paul said he made the good confession, and by so doing, he was a faithful witness. That's why Revelation calls Jesus the faithful witness. Or listen to Revelation 3.14, And to the angel of the church of Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness. That's who Jesus is. He isn't swayed by what men think or how they respond to him. Now remember, the context of all of this is Paul giving Timothy a charge. Timothy is not to fear, for God gives life. And Timothy is to follow the example of Jesus. In Timothy's pastoral ministry, he is to be obedient to what God has called him to do, regardless of the response. And there are pastors who are afraid because they do fear the response of people, not just pastors. If we are to assume that all God's people have a holy calling, the response of people concerns perhaps many of us. See, I can imagine a hundred reasons why God's people might not be obedient to God. And I'm not speaking about sins of the flesh. I'm speaking about the fear of man. Fear of what others say, fear of relationships broken, fear of jobs lost, fear of financial consequences, fear of how others might view them, fear of gossip that might ensue, fear. And that's why we need to hear the words of Paul. I charge you in the presence of God, the God who alone gives life, I charge you in the presence of Jesus, your example, to be as he was when he stood before Pilate. And that's the context, the command that Paul is about to give. So now we come to the command, and it's found in verse 14. To keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now our task, since it's so important, is to answer the question, what commandment does Paul have in mind? But before we answer that question, please notice that Paul insists that Timothy keep the commandment. That is, he is to stand guard over the commandment. He is to make sure that the commandment remains unstained, that no act of disobedience break the command. And then Paul adds even more. Keep the commandment free from reproach. Keep the commandment so that others have no opportunity to speak ill of the good command that God has given. Talk about heaven and hell has been forgotten in the present hour. For this reason, current evangelicalism sounds so very different from the kind of faith we find in the pages of the New Testament. In his preaching, Jesus depicted a roadway leading to either heaven or hell. The broad road leads to destruction. The narrow path leads to life. These are words written by Dr. John Newfeld in his newest book, Heaven and Hell. What could be as important as understanding the truth behind the reality of heaven and hell? Choose to request this new book today as our free gift for the month of November only. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. And while you're there, consider offering a financial gift to support Bible teaching you can trust and important Bible teaching resources like heaven and hell. point in time, we should have seen that everything in this passage is leading up to one key and central point. Timothy is to keep the commandment. 
So what's the commandment he's to keep? And since Paul in this immediate passage doesn't specify which commandment he has in mind, you know, many of us are left to scratch our heads in wonder. A number of suggestions have been made, and some have suggested the answer is in 1 Timothy 4.14, and that's where Paul commanded Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. That is, be faithful to the ministry you've been given. Well, others have suggested that the answer might be in the early part of chapter 6. And there Paul tells Timothy to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. That is, obey the commandment to remain a man of God known for his obedience to the Lord. And then after you've completed your ministry, there's going to be no reason at all to lay blame at the commandment. Instead, people will look at the faithful life of the minister of the gospel and be overwhelmed at the beauty of God's commands. While still others argue the commandment might have something to do with the very beginning of the book of 1 Timothy. Remember in chapter 1, Paul wrote telling Timothy to remain in Ephesus. That is, regardless of how tough it becomes, remain. Regardless of how many false teachers you have to correct, don't neglect your station. Now, when we think about it, each of these possible answers could be right. Pastor, don't run away when things get tough. Pastor, continue to serve God with the gifts that you've been given. Pastor, make sure your life and your doctrine is in line with the Word of God. Keep the commandment. Now, here's my understanding of it. Even though the word is in the singular, that is, referring to one commandment, it might be that Paul understood all of his individual commands to Timothy as a part of one large, comprehensive command. It comes under a general title. Be a faithful minister of the gospel. Stay put when it's hard. Use the gifts God gave you. Remain pure to all the moral commands that God has given. And make sure that what you teach people is the word of God. Keep the commandment. And I do think that's the best way to see it. You know, I once had a professor who had written a lengthy book called The Company of the Preachers. It was a history of the faithful preachers in the 2,000-year history of the Christian church. And at one point in time, Dr. Larson was asked why he didn't have any living contemporary preachers as a part of his volume. And his answer was interesting. You know, he said, it's important to wait until after they've died and their full life has been investigated and we can ascertain if there's been a hint of scandal in their lives. It's only after that we can say, this man has been a faithful preacher. At least he said something like that. And I think that's Paul's words to Timothy. In the presence of God and of Christ, you keep the command to be a faithful pastor until the end. And that's the word for all God's people. If you could get beyond the present-day struggles and the temptations that you face and the fears and the discouraging moments and recognize how valuable it is to be faithful, not only in this generation, but as a legacy for those who come after you. If you can get beyond the present moment, look into the future, how important do you think it is to keep the command today? And if you do, the commandment to be faithful will be unstained. It will be beyond reproach it will become apparent that the commands of God are life and that they're good. It will become apparent that no one who is ever obedient will look back over his or her life and say, it wasn't worth it. Instead, they will say, the commands of God, they bring life. Now then, let's finally come to that which I started with. Having bid Timothy to keep the commandment, 
Paul now moves Timothy to the time of the end, when his ministry is said and done, when he stands before God in the final day, what will be the outcome? Let's reread verses 14 to 16. Keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He was blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. I love those words. So how long do you keep the command? You keep it until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You keep it until Christ, who is your sovereign, comes for you. I had another professor who spoke to a number of us who were all young pastors, and he said this, young men, you want to know what it means to be faithful. When your commanding officer tells you to hold a hill in battle, when he returns, he'll find you either holding that hill in battle or lying dead on top of it. But he will not find you abandoning your charge. That is, whether we're alive and fighting the Lord's wars when he returns, or whether death claims us, we will not have deserted our calling. And that's not only true of pastors. It must be true of all of God's people. Are you aware of what Christ called you to do? If not, why is that? And if you're aware of your calling, are you doing it? And if not, why is that? And then we come to the doxology. Remember, I said it's like a blessing at the end of a church service, except this blessing is the summation of all things. In essence, Paul says when it's all said and done, and you've been faithful for a lifetime, and you stand before God, he will be so much more glorious than you've ever imagined. And as you gaze at his beauty, you're going to say, Oh my, for sure, it was worth it all. And so says Paul, he's the blessed and only sovereign. Of course, you know what a sovereign is. It's a king. He is one who rules. And in this case, it will become clear that he's the only one who rules. It will become clear that he has always controlled all things at all times. And it's led to this one supreme moment. And then also, Paul says, he's king of kings and lord of lords. You know, men and women did make decisions while we lived. Sometimes world leaders set the stage for evil and rebellion. But then in eternity, it will become clear that all of their rebellion only played into God's hands. We will see each wicked decision a ruler has made, and we will see the sovereign God behind it all, directing it for his glory. We'll be staggered to see all things really did work together for the glory of God and for the eternal well-being of his elect chosen people. And next, says Paul, we'll also see that God alone dwells in immortality. Of course, that means that God never dies, that he continually exists. But it means so much more than that. We know that all who hope in Christ will be raised from the dead. We will inherit eternal life. But we will also see that our eternal life is different from his immortal life. You know, for our lives are forever dependent on the will of God. We will eternally exist because God wills that it is so. We are contingent beings for eternity. Our lives are dependent always on him who made us. He, however, is dependent on no one. He exists of necessity. We are not so. To see the one who exists of necessity is a truly magnificent thing, for until now, we've only heard of him. Then, in some fashion, we will see him as he is. Paul's blessing of God is still not done. He says that God dwells in unapproachable light. Psalm 104 says that God has clothed himself in light. 
John tells us that God is light, that in him there is no darkness at all. And here Paul says the light is unapproachable, in that who can step into such a light? And then Paul adds that no one has seen him or can see him. And that itself is a great mystery. See, on the one hand, because God is spirit and not flesh, we know that there's nothing for the human eye to see. But on the other hand, we are told that we can't approach and see him. It's impossible for us to do so. Martin Luther called God the hidden God. And yet the Bible also tells us that we will comprehend him at some level. Put those two things together. It's amazing. You know, in a few brief words, Paul has described for us that whatever reward we may seek in this life, it all pales up against the overwhelming reality of God. Timothy, says Paul, I charge you to keep the commandment. For what could you desire more than this great and final beauty? With that, Paul finishes that wonderful doxology. To him, he says, be honor and eternal dominion. And I do know this, honor has been given to many men in this world. Some were great military geniuses, other scientists, some were inventors. On a lower level, some were entertainers who were thought to amuse us. They were remembered for an hour and they were quickly forgotten. The story is told of a missionary couple that came back from a ministry assignment. It just so happened when they came home, their city was celebrating something else. And the wife said, no one is celebrating the lives we've won to Christ. And her husband responded, that's because the celebration here is unfitting for what God has accomplished. In the final day, all faithful men and women will be called to the greatest celebration, the celebration of the one who has an eternal dominion. Let me ask it again. Do you think that's worthy of a life of faithfulness? Keep the commandment. Thanks for your message, John. You know, I've often heard you refer to the long term when it comes to a Christian perspective. Why is that so critical? Yeah, because if you have your eyes on the short term, um, you will not live for eternity or for the glory of Christ. Uh, So if all you are after is uh, immediate benefits, I don't think that you can grow in Christ. Uh, On the other hand, we recognize that there is an eternal reward that waits for those who hope in Christ. And so that may involve sacrifice and giving up what we might have in the immediate. That's a part of basic Christianity. Thanks again, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Living the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Momentum continues to pick up as friends look to travel with us on our 2022 Israel Experience. Join us in this Holy Land adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh Against Phil Calloway, special musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walked, Sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, David's royal palace, and experience communion together at the Garden Tomb. A traveler from our last experience shared, the trip was overwhelmingly wonderful, the trip of a lifetime. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate vacation experience, numbers are limited, so register soon. 
For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.